Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thank you so much for tuning in. Guest today is Bob Kendrick. Bob is the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, and this is what you would call a legacy podcast. We recorded this a little while back uh, and uh, kept it in storage for a little while just because it wasn't what you would call an evergreen, an opportunity to roll it out any time. And this is a good time. It's the dead of winter. It might be freezing cold where you are. Time to think about baseball. Time to think about the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, one of my favorite places. Bob's terrific. We talked about Josh Gibson and Cool Papa Bell and all the legends that made the game great in the earlier part of the 20th century in particular. Uh, lots of talk about the links between baseball and black communities at that time in the century. And really interesting and thought-provoking conversation. Bob is... Uh, really smart and really insightful and has such a great grasp of the game and particularly the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum influenced the sport and uh, really great. If you get a chance, do yourself a favor, go to Kansas City. Kansas City is a great town, period, but also make sure to visit the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and you will enjoy it immensely. And even if you've been to Cooperstown or other museums or whatever, I think that you will learn a lot. There's a lot of cool stuff there. It's laid out in a really neat way. It's a great way to spend an afternoon. So do that. Listen to this podcast with Bob Kendrick and enjoy. And that's it, Bob Kendrick. We've already started. It's just that gorilla here. That's how we do it. How are you? Man, I'm doing good. I am good. Busy, running like crazy, but, you know, in the scheme of things, I don't know if we'd have it any other way. It, it, it beats the alternative. That's right. We could be coal miners right now, which is good, <laughs> honest work, but tough. Oh, it's honest work, and it's really tough. And so, you know, there are days... Jonah, when I can't believe I get paid to do what I do. That's awesome. And then there are other days when I have this four-hour meeting that I have. Exactly <laughs> right before that I they don't it. pay me enough to do what I do. But no, fortunately, it's more of the former than the latter. Uh, it's a wonderful museum. We're all having a great time, and I think we all understand how important the work that we do is. And I think we've all embraced the notion that if we do it right, yeah. we'll leave a legacy. That's awesome. I guess the best way into this, and I do this no matter what, if I'm talking to an athlete or an entertainer or whatever, is we talk about the path, about how we got there in the first place. So are you just like true blue Kansas City to the core? Were you a big fan of Cool Papa Bell when you were 12? I mean, how did all this stuff come to be? I'm very interested. It it all happened by happenstance. I'm a native of Crawfordville, Georgia. Okay. Crawfordville, Georgia is east of Atlanta, west of Augusta. And according to the late, great Buck O'Neill, I'm the only person he ever met from Georgia that didn't claim Atlanta as home. <laughs> and, and because I'm not from Atlanta. You're I'm a proud Crawfordvillian. Crawfordville, Georgia, all of about 500 people. What's Crawfordville people. like? 500 people. All wow. about 500 people. Small town, very yeah. rural, uh, north central part of the state, so okay. very humble upbringing and... I got out to Kansas City chasing a basketball, of all things. I had a basketball scholarship to Park College then. It's now Park University. 
NAIA basketball. So that's what brought me to the Midwest. I didn't know a soul here. So I left Georgia coming out here, didn't know anyone. Wow. But I've never had problems making friends. And You? <laughs> I've had other friends and people who've met you said, that might be the most friendly guy I've ever met. And I said, he could be up there, yeah. And That's so, great. You know, that didn't, that didn't bother me as much. And so I got here. And the thing that bothered me the most was, I guess I didn't study my geography very well because I had no idea that it got as cold as it got in Tennessee. <laughs> How could a place be so hot in the summer and so cold in the winter? So I left Georgia with nothing but a windbreaker. <laughs> and the kids on the college campus saw that and said, no, man, we got to get you a coat. You ain't going to make it. And so they scared me to death. And the first winter, the first snowfall was, I don't know, six, seven inches. Oh. I've never seen that much snow in my life. Because it would snow in Georgia, but it might be gone in an yeah. hour. Yeah. And, and so this was, and they're all out snowball fighting. I'm, like, <laughs> I'm looking from the window. I'm like, I am not going out there. And, and so over time, I don't know if you ever get used to it. You accept it. I mean, I'm from Canada. I never yeah, got so used you, to it. So. Yeah, yeah, you know it's going to get cold. You know it's going to snow. And so you just kind of accept it. Yeah. But otherwise, Kansas City has been a great place for me and, yeah. and for my family. So, uh, you know, when you were at Park College, did, did your mode of, obviously, your playing basketball and studying at the same time. Were the things that you studied then at all applicable to your eventual career path? Like, how, when, when did yeah, you start my, to diverge? So I was, uh, my mother would probably say I was playing more basketball than studying. But you know how that goes. I'm I mean, I student. used to do that. Yeah, too. you're a college student. So, you you know, you're yeah. doing college things. And, um, I think my degree in college was communication arts. Okay. Emphasis on broadcast communications and journalism. Well, my first job out of college with the Kansas City Star. So I started at the Kansas City Star and eventually was working in their promotions department, Mm -hmm. which functioned as its in-house advertising agency. And so it was there that I drew the assignment of promoting the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum's first ever traveling exhibition. Cool. Right here at 18th Divine at the storefront space. We could see it from the window where we're recording this, where the uh, Cajun restaurant is now, Bayou on the Vine. Yeah formerly Danny's, and we had some success with that promotion, drew about 10,000 people in the summer of 1993 to see that traveling exhibition. The folks at the museum were so excited about the outpouring of interest that they then asked me if I would join their board of directors. I served as a board member for five years, doing a lot of the marketing, advertising things for the museum as a volunteer. And that's how my involvement came. So, yeah, I guess some of the training, things that I learned in school prepared me for this. But to be honest, Jonah, I was like most folks. I didn't know a lot about the Negro Leagues. Mm. I had heard the name Satchel Page, Cool Papa Bell, Josh Gibson. Those names kind of went mainstream. Mm. But I had no idea about the breadth, the depth, the scope, the magnitude of what this history represented both on and off the field. And these other unsung baseball heroes that people had not heard about. Yeah. And then I met Buck O'Neill. Mm. Tell me about your first encounter, first time you meet the guy. You know, I had heard the name. Yeah. Like most people in Kansas City, but remarkably, I'd been in this area for, at that point, I came here in 1980, graduated in 85, started working, was living here. I didn't meet him until 1993. Mm-hmm. 
And I tell people all the time, once you're bitten by the bug bug, <laughs> it's all over. He was the most charismatic, infectious, genuine individual I have ever met. Says one of the most charismatic, infectious, <laughs> genuine people I've ever met, by the way. So. And, and so you just wanted to be on Buck's team. Yeah. And so I got to know him. And then ultimately, as I became a working staff member yep. here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, we started traveling together. We were hanging out. We were playing golf. We were doing all these things, and he just became a great friend. Yeah. Now, you have to remember, when Bunk O'Neill died in 2006, he was almost 95 years yeah. old. And I was in my 40s. And this was like my best friend. You know, this was not like this elderly gentleman that you're just hanging out with. Right. This is like your boy. You know, you're hanging oh, out yeah. with your friend. Yeah, and yeah. We could talk about anything. He was... I called him a renaissance man because he was so in tune to any and everything that was happening. I would pick him up as was customary, drive him to the airport when we were going someplace and I might have some music on and say, Bob, who that? I said, oh, Bob, that's Anthony Hamilton. Turn that up. Amazing. Cool. (laughs) Yeah. Or it could have been Billy Joel or it could have been LL Cool J. It didn't matter. Yeah. He just always seemed to appreciate he was so well read, so he stayed in touch with things that were happening, and mm-hmm. so we uh, could talk about virtually anything. And obviously, he was so wise. Oh yeah, there was so much wisdom there to be imparted if you wanted it. Yeah, enforce it on you, but it was there if you wanted it. And I tell people all the time, I think the smartest thing I ever did was I kept my mouth closed and I listened. Yeah, yeah. And, and what a blessing for me. To have been able to spend that kind of time with Buck O'Neill, and they paid me to do it. I would have done it for free. Yeah, don't tell them that. Don't tell them. them. (laughs) But I would have done that for free. And the museum in those days when you latched on, I mean, it's it's an impressive place now. And this whole complex is lovely, of course. You and I chatted about it a little bit, though. It was a room at first, basically, right? There wasn't much to it. Yeah, that's what makes it, I think, so special. Yeah. We were in a conference room half the size of this little conference right. room that we're in right now, and guys like Buck O'Neill and other former Negro leaders who were with us at that time literally took turns paying the monthly rent wow. to keep that little office open. And, of course, with it, our dreams of someday building a facility that would pay rightful tribute mm-hmm. not only to one of the great chapters in baseball history, but what now thousands of visitors from around the world discovered, one of the great chapters in American history. Yeah. But that's how we got started. So we're as grassroots an organization as you will ever encounter. But I think that's what made the journey that much more special, mm-hmm. that much more rewarding, because you defied the odds. No one gave the Negro Leagues Museum any chance of succeeding. And Jonah, when you think about where we decided to anchor here at historic 18th and Vine. There wasn't much here. There was nothing in. else here. There was decades ago. Yeah. It was a wonderful, oh, it was thriving. vibrant it was community. Yeah. yeah. But like a lot of urban areas, yeah. it died. And so even some of our most ardent supporters did not want us to come here. Hmm. And it made sense because the question was who was going to come. Yeah. But Buck O'Neill, for again, all of his infinite wisdom, yeah. said, This is where we will anchor. This is the area in which the Negro Leagues were organized here in Kansas City in 1920. And he understood that this was going to be good for the potential growth 
of what used to be one of the most prominent African-American communities anywhere in this country. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it was never self-serving for the Negro Leagues Museum. It was always about the... Kind of the opposite. Absolutely. Maybe it would have been easier if you put it in a downtown it office It would have been building. much easier. Yeah. Yeah, of course it would have been. Yeah. But had we done that, yeah. I don't think you would have seen the development that has occurred here at Historic 18th Divide since the time that we anchored here. And so we went essentially from a one-room office in 1990 to becoming America's National Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, great ride. So you talked about... That it's not just the history of baseball, it's the history of America. And I think that when people speak in those terms, they tend to think of Jackie Robinson, which, mm -hmm. of course, you yeah. know, you're integrating baseball and all of it. You know, the idea of learning to deal with adversity by using grace, by using patience. Yeah. There are enduring lessons that go beyond baseball, beyond America, that go to humanity. When you talk about it from the Negro League's perspective, what do you mean? What, what examples can you give? What... What feeling, what sense can you give us about the impact that those leagues yeah. made when it was a little bit different? When it wasn't about integrating an no, all-white no, no, sport, it was no. about staying true to what it was, which was a very vibrant and interesting and, and essential product at that time. What you love about this story is that, number one, it's based on one small, simple principle. You won't let me play with you, then I'll just create a league of my own. Yeah. Yeah. And so from that respect, Jonah, the story is so steep in the American spirit. That is what guides this story. That is what propels this story. So it was America that was trying to prevent them from sharing in the joys of her so-called national pastime. Right. But the American spirit allowed them to rise above and prevail. And I think that's why the story is so compelling. It is so awe-inspiring. It touches people. doesn't matter what color your skin mm -hmm. is. Because we can all relate to that triumphant nature. These athletes never cried about the social injustice. They went out and did something about it. And they knew that they were talented. And they were not going to allow anything to stifle that talent. This ability to express ourselves on the baseball diamond. To make a living at the game that they love so greatly. So they were willing to endure whatever social adversity confronted them hmm. as they traveled the highways and byways of this country. See, the baseball field was really their refuge. Yeah. 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 It was what was happening in between. The restaurant get... one mile away. Exactly. In the South or, or wherever, <laughs> frankly. Well, wherever. Yeah. You know, because you could go into a town, fill up the ballpark, mm -hmm. but not be able to get a meal from the same fans who had just cheered you or not have a place to stay. Mm -hmm. So they slept on the bus and oftentimes would eat their peanut butter and crackers, but they never let that kill their love of the game. Hmm. So I tell our guests all the time, what's not to love about this story? Yeah, it, it is a very special story, and the way that we treat it, it's not sad, it's not somber, it is the triumphant, it's a triumphant story. It's the power of the human spirit to persevere and prevail. And a lot of that is Rube, right? I mean, Rube was, played such a big role in terms of, you had the players. You knew that you would have guys, okay, it's an opportunity to play. I'm going to go play. That sounds great. And it's not to diminish that. That's wonderful. And the adversity that they faced and, and how good they were was incredible. But Rube was the guy who had a little bit of cash, who had a lot of imagination, and who galvanized this a little bit, right? So what can you tell us about him? What's, what's his Rube background? Rube Foster. Andrew Rube Foster, the genius. Uh, Ruth Foster, man, was so far ahead of the time. 
Yeah. Mufasa was light years ahead of his time. Without question, the greatest baseball mind this sport has ever seen. Hmm. Nobody knows anything about. Yeah. Yeah, because the the brand of baseball that he created when he created the Negro Leagues Baseball, uh, Negro Leagues Baseball was just tremendous. It was so polar opposite from what you were seeing in Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball was a base-to-base kind of game. Guy got it, got on base, booed him to second, and then the big hitters came in and drove him in. Yeah. Yeah, that's fine, mm-hmm. but not the Negro League. Root Foster would fine his ball players as much as $5 in the 1900s if they were tagged out standing up. Wow. Yeah, you're supposed to slide. <laughs> and, and Rude would draw a circle down the first baseline and a circle down the third baseline. And Jonah, if every one of his guys couldn't drop a bunt inside that circle, he would find them. He was adamant about the style of play that became signal to a Negro League baseball. Yeah. Very fast, very aggressive, very daring. Bunch your way on, steal second, steal third, and if you were too smart, they steal home. <laughs> and as a result, fans flocked to those games. And as the late great Buck O'Neill would say, you couldn't go to the concession stand because you might miss something you've never <laughs> seen before. And that was Negro League's baseball. The pace of the game was much quicker. Yeah. And the athleticism that you saw was second to none in, in these leagues. But it all started with Ruben Foster. He was the architect. Yeah, he was the architect. And even in the 1920s when he formed the Negro Leagues, eight teams in 1920 formed the Negro National League, Root Foster had either booking rights or ownership of four of those eight teams. Mm-hmm. You know what he did? He divested ownership of three, kept the Chicago American Giants, but then started to disperse star players around the league right. because he understood in 1920 that if the Negro Leagues were going to be successful you had to have competitive balance. That's how far he was. They still learning that now. We didn't have revenue sharing in the mid nineties <laughs> when they canceled the World Series because they didn't have competitive balance. They didn't know what to do about nineteen twenties. Guys, go figure it out. This is nineteen twenty. Wow. Yeah. So that's how far ahead he was. And the thing is, you talk about this being a game of finesse and speed, but it was everything. It was that. But then Gibson just hit the snot out of all. Turkey Stearns could rake. I mean, these guys could hit. So you had guys that could hit the ball out the ball. Yeah. But all of them could run. Yeah. Josh Gibson could steal your 20, 25. Oh, yeah. As a catcher. As a big catcher. Big, strong catcher. Yeah. But that's the kind of athlete that we were talking about mm. there in the Negro Leagues. And so, yeah, people of all colors came to watch these games and enjoyed these games. And there are those who say that they were watching the best baseball being played in this country without question the most entertaining brand of baseball being played. And it expanded. You talked about it being originally at eight, and then we talk about Negro Leagues, plural. It expands into different leagues. What are we talking about the heyday? Is this the 30s when we're peaking at that well, point? The, the 20s were vibrant. 20s. Yeah, the 20s were vibrant yeah. when Rube first organized Negro mm-hmm. Leagues. And then, as fate would have it, we move into the Great Depression, and Rube's untimely death yeah. hurt the Negro Leagues, just like the Depression hurt a lot of aspects of, of life right. in this country. And then Gus Greenlee would revive the Negro Leagues in the 40s. Yeah. And then in the 40s, this thing took off mm-hmm. all the way until Jackie breaks the color barrier. Yeah. It's an interesting thing, too, because one would be conflicted about that. You know oh, what absolutely. I mean? I, I would imagine that the people that were running the league would feel conflicted about it. In retrospect, you know, us talking about it, wow, the Negro Leagues are so great. 
the greatest thing happening would start to ruin the Negro Leagues. It's such a hard thing to wrap your mind around. Well, there's a, there's a uh, great voiceover by James Earl Jones in one of our films yeah. that says, you might say that the Negro League, no, this is Bernie Shaw. Yeah. Bernie Shaw in one of our films says, you might say that the Negro Leagues were so good that they put themselves out of business. Mm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, because that is exactly what happened. And, and it is bittersweet from that standpoint because, Jonah, I'm not sure... The African-American community understood what we were losing when we lost the Negro Leagues. See, we were all excited about Jackie breaking the color barrier because we wanted to see our great black stars and how they would fare once they got an opportunity to compete on the same field with the great white athletes. We wanted to see that, but we had no idea what the detriment of that was going to be away from baseball. Hmm. See, that killed black economy to a great extent. Because you have to remember, wherever you had successful black baseball, you had thriving black economies. That's one reason that 18th and Vine died. Huh. That's one reason that the South Side in Chicago or Arvin Avenue in Atlanta, that's one of the reasons that they died, because that infrastructure was lost. Negro Leagues Baseball was bringing black businesses a clientele that led those businesses to their economic heights. Many of those black businesses emerged to take care of the need of those Negro League teams. Mm. Yeah, so the street hotel was right here on the corner they gave a buy. That's where all the teams stayed when they came to Kansas City. And so you're putting 20,000 people into the ballpark. And so when those people let out the ballpark, they came right back here to 18th and Vine and did business with all those segregated, mandated black-owned businesses. Yeah. And so those businesses, as a result, were flourishing. Jackie breaks the color barrier. That, in large respect, triggers integration in our society. All of a sudden, those smaller black businesses can no longer compete with the larger chain stores, the larger department stores, and so they die. Yeah, so that was kind of the byproduct. But overall, it was good for the soul of our country. It moved us in ways in this country that I don't know if people even ever fathom could happen from a social standpoint. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to get to that and spin it forward to today and reviving black communities and so forth, but I, we'll try to keep it as chronological as we can. <laughs> and I knew this would happen because that's, I've met you in a good way. Um, the, Josh Gibson, <laughs> excuse me, the Josh Gibson thing I always found very interesting, and maybe other players too, that Satch was a great player, but he wasn't 25 anymore, and you had a certain amount of kind of quite you question what might have happened. That Jackie came in, he was in his prime, but Gibson never even got to play, and, and he no. became very ill, and it became a problem. No. You know, we can only hypothesize, but if all you know, if integration had occurred earlier, and we had all you know, if Oscar Charleston had broken, if all these great, great players, how good might they have been? Because Jackie, obviously, Hall of Famer, not just for social impact, but truly a great player. How good were the best players in the Negro Leagues, and how might they have fared in the big leagues? As Buck would say, they were better than that. Yeah. Yeah, they were better than that. These guys could play. Yeah. And, and quite frankly, Jonah, their white counterparts knew that they could play. Yeah. Because they had competed with and against each other. Barnstorming and so forth. Barnstorming yeah. in Latin America, mm-hmm. playing winter ball. So they knew that these guys could play. Mm-hmm. It really was just the social conditions of our time and fear that kept them out. But to put it in a modern-day perspective, yeah. you look at who are the two greatest living Major League Baseball players today. 
I mean, I have, I believe that Barry Bonds is one of them. Well, and, but and Willie Mays, Hank Aaron. Willie Mays and yeah. Hank Aaron. Yeah. They, so, I mean, three. Yeah, but I believe Bonds point. is too. Yeah. But Willie Mays and Hank Aaron, arguably the two greatest yeah. living Major League Baseball players today, both of them mm-hmm. come out of the Negro League. Yeah. They both come out of the Negro League. So that's just a sampling of the talent pool that was there in the Negro League. So when I hear a guy like Blake Great Monty Irvin, mm-hmm. who I had the utmost respect for, who was a great baseball yeah. player in the Major Leagues, a superstar player in the Negro Leagues, mm-hmm. and Monty says, well, I played with Willie Mays, I played against Hank Aaron, and neither of them are Josh Gibson. Wow. That's, Holy moly. That, that is scary to me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Or when I hear Buck O'Neill say that Oscar Charleston yeah. was Willie Mays before we ever knew who Willie Mays was. Yeah. Five and that, yeah. And that the closest thing to Oscar Charleston would be Willie Mays. Wow. So you start to think about players who were better than Willie Mays and Hank Aaron. That did not get this opportunity. Yeah. Now, what I take umbrage to is sometimes people say, well, it's a shame that nobody saw them play. Well, no, that's not true. A lot of somebody's sure. saw them play. They just happened to be the majority were black. Yes. Yeah, because they were filling up ballparks all over the country. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of people saw them play. But mainstream America missed some of the greatest baseball players to ever put on a baseball uniform. And this goes... We're talking back to the late 1800s yep. with guys who were great. And, and you th- don't use that term loosely, you know, because greatness is reserved to a, a certain sure. caliber of athlete. But if Martin DeHigo gets an opportunity, and for those who are listening who have not heard that name, comes to the museum, first of all. Come to the <laughs> Baseball Museum. But the man is the only baseball player in the history of our sport to be in five different countries, baseball halls of fame. So he's in the Mexican, Dominican, yeah. Cuban, Venezuelan, and in Cooperstown. Played all nine positions, played all nine of them well. If Ray Dandridge can get to the Minneapolis Millers when he's 37, 38 years old, and he's named MVP. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's named MVP at 37, 38 you know, what happens if he gets to the major leagues when he's 21, 22 years old? Ray Dandridge was outstanding. By right, he should have gotten an opportunity to play in the major leagues, but they weren't going to take a 37-year-old black man to take a white kid's job at that time when he wasn't going to have the level of service that you would want from a player. But by, you know, in retrospect, Jackie Robinson was old by baseball standards. He's 28 years old. Yeah, Yeah, he's old by baseball standards, and so... Guys that preceded Jackie, though, there were so many of them who didn't get that opportunity to transition. The young stars from the Negro Leagues got that opportunity, became great stars in the Major League. So you start throwing out names like Ernie Banks, Roy Campanella. These guys all come out of the Negro Leagues. Elson Howard, out of the Negro Leagues. And, and so, yeah, it gives you that foundation to give you a basis for the kind of talent that was there in the Negro Leagues. These guys would have been stars in any league. Uh, let's go back to the point that we were talking about previously about the way black communities were and the, and the yeah. way we would hope that they would become. This is a rebuilt community. Mm-hmm. It's great. It's really great. There is no baseball team playing here, but we, we figured it out. You talked about the South Side. You talked about Atlanta. 
if we're going to get to that point where we've got the kinds of vibrant communities that we had in the 20s, what needs to be done? Is there some sort of economic stimulus? Is it just an entrepreneurial spirit from local people? I'm just going to take it upon myself. How do we get there? Well, I think we have to see a little bit of that. I think economic empowerment is one of the things that drives change. Yeah. More so than anything else. Of course. Yeah, we fall into the romantic nature of these other things that are so symbolic in nature, but to impart true change is to generate economic empowerment. And I think that's why the Negro Leagues were so important. They were that economic engine. Yeah. They were driving this thing. So what we've seen here at AT Divine is what I hope will happen in other communities, but I'm so proud of the fact that here the little Negro Leagues Museum comes along years after the Negro Leagues are over, and we've done exactly what the Negro Leagues did for urban communities across this country. We've done it for this one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can tell you with all no level of uncertainty, the changes that you've seen here in the 18th environment would not have happened had the Negro Leagues Museum not anchored here. Mm. And, and so that makes us all very proud. And then to share this story, to shine light on the story, of what it means beyond baseball. And those are the things that we talk about is economic empowerment, leadership, and then ultimately the social advancement of this country. All of that's wrapped up inside the story. But I do think that the investment that needs to occur and has to occur for urban areas to be successful, to create job opportunities in those communities uh, and to provide the necessary infrastructural needs so that these communities can be vibrant once again. We talked about investment. Granted, this is on a micro level, but it's been interesting to see here and there current stars saying, I'm going to get behind this thing. And Adam Jones comes to mind immediately. Adam, a great financial supporter. And beyond that, just he gets it. He gets know? it. He, he gets, gets it. it. And, and, and I'm wondering, you know, how that relationship came to be and how it is that the museum, which is based on events that happened a really long time ago, yeah. finds a way to interact with the current generation of players and people around the game and make them realize this is an important part of our heritage. We want you to be a part of it. We want us to be on this journey together. Well, Adam has been a longtime friend, supporter of the Negro Leagues Museum. He had to remind me because I had almost forgotten. He's been in Baltimore so long that I had forgotten that he was in Seattle. Mm -hmm. and, and that's where it all started for him. The Eric Bedard trade. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and so he's been coming here since his days of being with the Mariners. Yeah. And, and so it's been a relationship. I think he, he's so proud of the heritage of our sport and what his legacy is in this game and what this represents from a standpoint of legacy in this game. And, and it just so happens to happen that he was, Baltimore was on their way to Kansas City when that ugly incident occurred yeah. in Boston, yeah. he had already planned to make the gift before this happened. Mm -hmm. And But the timing, you know, in some ways, Jonah couldn't have been better. Yeah. Because what it did was it gave us a platform for a much larger and broader discussion. Because some of the things that we're seeing in our society right now are yeah. things that we thought had died years ago. And they have resurfaced and they're becoming even more vocal yeah. and, and vile in many respects. Because I told someone here recently, if you've taken a picture of that Adam Jones situation and, and took that picture in black and white, hell, you would have thought it was 1947 all yeah. over again. Yeah. Yeah. That was Jackie Robinson on the field and people were yelling at him 
these horrible, you know, just vile kinds of things. Hey, just and, and this is 2017. Yeah. Yeah. And we're still hating people that we don't know. Yeah. And, and, and if you wake up every day and you just hate another human being, then something is mightily wrong with you. Yeah. And, and, and what we know, and, and Buck talked about this so much, that hate eats you up inside. It's much easier to love than it is to hate. Of course. Yeah, much easier. It takes far less energy yeah. to love another human being than it is to hate them. And, and so for me, Adam Jones represents what I think the best of the Negro Leagues were. And the thing, though, that I share with all of my young athletes, when you come here, and the one common denominator that they all share is a love of the game. Mm. But you'll never see a greater example of love of the game than you do when you walk through the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. They had to love it in order to endure the things that they had to endure. And, and so I think the athletes can relate to that sheer love of the game. But also when you make your living in this sport, you know how challenging it is to play this game. Baseball at its crux is a game of failure. So when they're hearing these stories of these legendary athletes and the amazing feats and accomplishments of these athletes, and it's it, and it's propped up against the challenges of American segregation and the things they had to go through, you can't help but appreciate it. And they enjoy the stories. So these stories transcend race, transcend age, transcend gender. So when I'm telling them the Satchel Page stories, or I'm telling them the stories of Cool Papa Bell and Josh Gibson, man, they're baseball fans too. They can appreciate again, how great these guys were, even if they didn't know it initially. Well, and to your point, the list of, of really ardent supporters of the museum, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe Ichiro is a gigantic fan of the museum. Yeah, support. Yeah, and that's interesting because that's not his heritage. Mm-hmm. Uh, he might not have even been familiar with these stories at all, and he comes over and he's just, this is baseball, this is the love of the game. Wow, these guys were great. Frankly, Ichiro in his prime, a little bit of cool Papa Bell in him, you know, no, fast no, and daring no, and so forth. No question. Yeah. And, and he, too, was bitten by the Buck Bug. Yeah. He met Buck O'Neill. Wow. He met Buck O'Neill, and Buck would hang around at the K all the time, and he's at the batting cages, yeah. and he's encouraging guys, and being Buck. And, and all the guys who would come into Kansas City would tell you the same thing. Man, we used to love coming to Kansas City because there was Buck. And, and Buck, Buck just loved baseball. He loved baseball players. He's going to talk baseball. He was the most encouraging guy that you could ever, ever know. Yeah. And, and they all admired that and they appreciated that. Ichiro was no different. But he also said he admired Buck's style. Mm. Buck was an impeccable dresser. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So he was out there. He's looking good. And so he and Ichiro strike up this relationship. As a result of, and I don't know if Ichiro knew before he came here to the museum that there had been a Negro League team that had played in Japan as early as 1927. Wow. Yeah, this is well before Ruth and his All-Stars go to Japan. They're commonly credited with having taken professional baseball to the Japanese, Mm. but it's not true. Mm. It was a team called the Philadelphia Royal Giants, a barnstorming Negro Leagues team that goes to Japan in 1927, man, play a 24-game exhibition series. They go like 23-0 and 1 on the tour. <laughs> they had two future Hall of Famers on that team. Raleigh Biz Mackey, mm-hmm. one of the greatest defensive catchers. Some say 
the greatest defensive catcher this sport has ever seen. He taught Roy Campanella how to catch, Hall of Famer, and Andy Cooper, both in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And so there was this connection that I'm not sure he was aware of until we showed him this rare memorabilia and Game Day magazine written in old Japanese. And he was able to interpret what was on the cover of the magazine. And I think that brought the bond even more, made it more stronger. Now, Buck had passed away when he came here. But when Buck died in 2006, Ichiro sent flowers. The very next year, when the Mariners were coming to town, he calls my office through his interpreter, says, Ichiro wants to meet with you. Yeah. And I'm like, man, Ichiro wants to meet with me. That's cool. I knew, <laughs> I knew he had been to the museum. Yeah. He snuck in here on us. We didn't even know it. We didn't know it until we saw the credit card slip. <laughs> and, and, and so I knew he had been here before. And so I'm like, okay, Ichiro wants to meet with me. And we come right up here in this conference room. He's seated over on this side of the table. And he starts talking about his love of Buck O'Neill. And he reaches and pulls out his checkbook and says, in memory of Buck, I want to do this for the Negro Leagues Museum. And he writes a significant personal check yeah. to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Now, here's a kid from Japan that understands. That's amazing. That gets it. Yeah, it was one of it was a special moment, I think, for me personally and professionally because again, it shows that this story has no boundaries. Mm -hmm. It has no limitations. It touches virtually everyone who experiences it. And I like the way that the museum finds a way to bring the current game to them, and vice versa. Via the Hall of Game, but that's a pretty yeah. cool thing. I yeah. love, first of all, the Gem Theater is awesome. <laughs> but uh, I got a chance to go. Uh, this will be absolutely shocking to my listeners, but Andre Dawson and Tim Raines were there. <laughs> I'm a slightly a partisan person. But Tony Oliva and, and the experience of it uh, was really cool. Uh, tell me a little bit about how that came to be, because it's a really interesting way to go about bringing the game to the modern era and also making different people aware of things that they might not have been before. Yeah, it was a crazy idea that I had. Uh, we wanted to do, I thought it would be cool to do an event that celebrated legendary major leaguers who we believe played the game the way they played it in the Negro Leagues. Mm. So you played it with passion, you played it with determination, you obviously played it with a high level of skill. Yeah. But you also played with a little swag, as the kids would say, a little flair. You had to have that if you were playing in the Negro sure. League. That's just the way they played the game. So each year, we induct a class that we believe embodies that, that spirit. And this thing has just taken off. That's why I was so happy that we inducted Timmy Raines into our Hall of Game. The very next year, mm. he's inducted into the National Baseball <laughs> Hall of Fame. And so Tim was just here uh, last week, as a matter of fact. Yeah playing in the Buck O'Neill Golf Classic. So it was great to see him. Great to see him add HOF by his name oh, yeah. now because it was long overdue. Sure. Tony Oliva should be in a the magnificent National Baseball player. Hall of Fame. Terrific player. Absolutely yeah. magnificent yeah. baseball player. And so we had Orlando Cepeda here that year yeah, and both. all these guys and Andre Dawson. And so it was a great class that year. And this class that we had in June, you know, was also equally great and guys really enjoyed the experience. And so the fans enjoy hearing their stories. These guys, it doesn't matter what color you are. It is just simply based on how you play the game. Uh, if you play it in that spirit in which they played it in the Negro Leagues, eventually we're going to come knocking on your door 
to ask you to accept admittance into our Hall of Game. It's very interesting, too, because having been to inductions there and now having been to the Hall of Game as well, the stories are a little different. When they're up on the podium here, it's not exactly the same as it is in the field in Cooperstown. It's right in Cooperstown, but it's more personal. It's more you know, and it's, and it's about, especially if you go back to the days of Oliva and Cepeda, guys like that, it's about the challenges that they face. It's about the, discrim- the very real discrimination that they had, and they give in a way. I was, you know, mesmerized by that stuff. Mm-hmm. And again, great in Cooperstown, too, but we're just talking about a totally different animal, almost like a, a personal thing yeah. that you're sharing just with the audience that's there. Well, and I think that's what we wanted the our audience to experience. Yeah. As, you, as you touched on the gym theater, beautiful old theater. Lovely. Very intimate, though. Yeah. You know, 500-plus seats. Yep. So you're right there, and, and the guys get an opportunity to tell their story. And it's not a scripted thing. It is a very organic mm-hmm. thing. You add, you know, Q&A session with them on stage, and they're funny, they are introspective. Mm-hmm. You, you get an opportunity for us, particularly with athletes like Orlando Cepeda, whose father, the Bull, played with and against Negro League players yeah. on the year prior, Louis Tiant whose father played in the Negro Leagues. And so that connection to the Negro Leagues, which is so strong between that Spanish-speaking athlete and these leagues, and then having to go through the same thing that the American-born blacks yep. players. Louis Tiant would say he was called the N-word, he didn't know what it meant. Yeah, You know, Minnie Minoso would say the same thing. I was called the N-word, didn't even know what it meant. And, and, and so, so they had some of the same challenges and tribulations that these athletes had in the Negro Leagues, the American-born black athletes had, but they all bonded. And the Negro Leagues gave them a playing ground because they couldn't play in the major leagues either. Mm. And and so when Jackie breaks the color barrier, he doesn't do it for just American-born blacks. He does it for every player. For Roberto Clemente. I mean, guys like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so the Negro Leagues just play such a pertinent role. And so that environment is just so conducive for bringing those stories to light. Yeah. And, and, and the guys, you know, they just, you can feel the emotion. The crowd responds to it. Big time. And so I think we've hit on something that is pretty good. It's pretty big. I, I mean, and I would encourage... this money for the Negro Leagues Museum as well. It does. And I would encourage people to, I mean, come in December, come whenever you want. But if you had to pick a weekend, that's a pretty interesting that's a good weekend. weekend to come. Because, well, and it's very... You know, it's not like you got a ring of security. You want to come up and talk to Tony Oliva? You probably can. I just don't think you could pull that off in Cooperstown if you're a member of the paint yeah. public. It really is intimate and uh, just warm and friendly. And, so, and the crowd is extremely diverse. I mean, all kinds of yes, different that, situations. Yes. And, it's, and yeah. I met a whole bunch of people. Just like, oh, what's your deal? Oh, this, yeah. this, this. And, uh, yeah, really, really enjoyed it a great deal. Um, so one last question, which I do at the end of every podcast. And, and uh, this, you could kind of think about this a little bit. Is I always ask the guests for a light tip, a nugget of wisdom. If I meet you somewhere, maybe at, we're at Arthur Bryan's. You got a rib, I got some brisket or whatever. I say, <laughs> oh, nice to meet you. I'm Joe. And you say, well, I'm Bob. Oh, this is what I'm about. You know, this is. And, and you would say, this is what you're about. And it could be something inspirational and let's hear it from the heavens. Or it could be something very simple and almost even funny and relaxed. Whatever it is, the essence of you. It's something that stuck with me that Buck said. Yeah. And so you'll hear me relate Buck all the time because I was so close to him and I absolutely adored the man. But he said something to me. He said, if you find a job that you love, you'll never work a day in your life. I found that job. 
you know, and I absolutely love doing what I do because, and for me, what makes it so important is that it's not about me. This is so much bigger than me. Yeah. It's so much bigger than any of us who work here. Even and, bigger than Buck, and Buck was yeah, as big as he it was gets. a part yeah, of it. Yeah. And, and so, but any time that you can do something that is there for others yeah. to enjoy, I don't know if it gets any more fulfilling and gratifying than that. And, and I think that's what I enjoy every single day. There are the challenges, absolutely. When you have to raise money to keep an entity like this alive and open and vibrant, sure, it is challenging. There are some days I'm scratching my head and I get told no a lot. Four-hour meetings. Yeah, four-hour <laughs> meetings. <laughs> but when I stop and I sit back, and sometimes I have to pinch myself. Because I'll say, man, you know what? You just hung out with Hank Aaron. Yeah. Yeah, I was just downstairs with Willie Mays. <laughs> and, and you say, why me? Because this could have been anybody. Yeah. Yeah, this could have been anybody. And, and so I, I feel extraordinarily blessed to do what I do. I hope and pray that we'll continue to do this well so that future generations mm -hmm. will have an opportunity to come here to learn more about this history and what it represented. And, and so, yeah, it, 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 it warms my heart to, to be a part of building something that will hopefully stand the test of time. Well, future generations, the steward of this place has been first Buck O'Neill and then you. The future generations have their work cut out for them when it comes to enthusiasm and real love. And, uh, and I hope that that happens. And, and, uh, you've done so much for this place and for the game of baseball. And I thank you for allowing me, I, I visited with my family, uh, the opportunity to get a sense of what this place is all about. Well, we appreciate it, man. This is a lot of fun. And, you know, we ne it never gets old. It just absolutely never gets old. The stories, telling the stories, and I used to marvel because Buck would tell the stories and some of those stories he must have told a thousand times or more. But every time he told that story, he told it like it was the first time he ever yeah. told it. And, and I got a chance to be around that and I try to incorporate that into what I do as I take people on that nostalgic journey through the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And so this is a lot of fun for me to sit down and talk to you about this museum, the history of the Negro Leagues, and all what it represents. And so thank you for that opportunity.